Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So Sam, I looked at her and I said, Now you listen here, sweetheart. I'm not about to let this wreck of a life drag you under like it did me. To take you on this journey would be like plucking a flower from a garden. There are certain treks that happen alone and this is just one of them. A trek into one's mind can... Well, you can't leave two sets of footprints. That's some metaphor, John. But Sam, I'm telling you, to leave her behind, well... Well, that's a pain I don't know if I've ever experienced before. Well, now a woman's love is a precious thing. Well, it's a dreadful thing. But isn't it something that it exists? Something that could bring a man like you to a man like me on a night like this for a drink like that? <laughs> I suppose you're right. Love is a song, my friend. Most listen, some appreciate, but a few learn how to sing along. I'm not much of a singer, Sam. Yeah, well, neither is that whiskey. But here you are singing like a bird. Sam, between you and me, I hope she soars. Hmm. May we all. guys welcome back to the okay pause what was that was like drake take care (laughs) dude i watched one scene from casablanca and that's and that's what we got understandable carry on you can blame our boy addison for that one uh shout out to addison for the suggestion and make sure that if you're listening to this and you identify as a man go check out tether it's the men's mental health peer support social network that addison helped co-found uh and i'm a member of that community and i've i absolutely love love tether um they've become a, a huge part of my support system and uh, they're just great so you can download it on apple android and uh yeah you can just connect with the community of men who get it it's it's great if you guys want literally anything shout it out on the podcast all you have to do is answer the question box the week leading up to the podcast on either at life's podcast or at morsey and we got you like literally anything he's got to deal with the repercussions i'm I, i'll do whatever i don't i don't care if you make mittens for endangered monkeys like I'll throw it in there. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're, yeah. It's good. It's good, good stuff. Man. And like I was saying, uh, what's going on, guys? And welcome back to the podcast. I'm your host, who apparently now loves black and white movies, uh, Kyle Moore. And joining me is always uh, also me. Good day. You know, it is kind of funny, you know, like looking at this from the point of view of recording and editing 
and stuff like it's literally just me sitting in my room talking to myself yeah but that's the thing right like everyone does it we just do it out loud and record it for the enjoyment of our gorgeous listeners well if it ain't broke don't fix it and coincidentally we're broken just so many ways uh but this seems to work out so let's just Uh run with it Uh, touche you know me so well i try but i guess that's like the thing you know what like knowing you knowing my mind because that's what you are yeah you're six three and can't talk what's your point yeah okay sure uh soft spot but the concept of the mind and the brain is something that like we're we're insanely interested in but to actually understand it is like a whole other realm and thankfully the only thing that you have to focus on is just being the dumbest guy in the room which is like comes super easy to you and talking to people who get it or you know or at least are are working on getting it like this week's guest Segway. can i please to our dear listeners i am so happy to proudly introduce a man who talks some actual sense on this podcast harsh inaccurate no carry yeah, on that's what i thought uh introducing dr sean hill Dr. Hill is the director of the Kremble Center for Neuroinformatics, senior scientist at the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH, and a professor at the University of Toronto. Dr. Hill is a computational neuroscientist with experience in building large-scale computational models of brain circuitry. The center collaborates with clinicians and researchers employing neuroinformatics, artificial intelligence, and multi-scale modeling to develop data-driven definitions of brain disorders, predict patient trajectories, and transform mental health care. It's kind of smart. Dr. Hill, it's a pleasure to have you. Welcome to the podcast, man. How are you doing? Well, uh, no, it's it's great. Um, of course, I think as as with everybody, um, dealing with the, the lockdown and then my, my partner is away uh, for family issues. The kids are on break and I'm working full time. So, you know. It's easy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It seems a little bit overwhelming, I'm sure. <laughs> but but no, I mean, I think truly, um, you know, I've been very very fortunate, and um, you know, I, I know that there are many, um, you know, that don't have the support, and and uh, and are also, you know, there are many many great challenges um, to the isolation, to you know, unemployment, of course, to you know, to all of the the very real stressors that a pandemic brings. Mm-hmm. So I feel very fortunate. That's great. That's a. I mean, it's a it's a great approach. I know that it is kind of tough sometimes when there is so much. Uh, I guess you could say like negativity. Um, and, and granted, rightfully so. I think that uh, sometimes there can be a little bit of that chronic positivity that we see, where it's like, hey, brush it all under the rug; it'll be fine tomorrow. Um, now this is hard. This yeah, is, yeah, and, yeah. And let's be let's be real about it. Exactly, exactly. Um, that's great. And, and as I said, uh, Doctor Hill, I, I really appreciate you being here today. Um, and I, I kind of want to know. I mean, I always love to hear with somebody who has dedicated their lives to such a such an interesting topic and such a i mean it's the brain it's the most diverse and intricate thing that we basically can comprehend what would you say throughout all of the work that you've done is that first moment where you've really kind of had that that wow moment of uh, kind of along your path well you know i think the 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 driving force for me has always been just to understand how is it that this collection of neurons and synapses and, and biological tissue can actually generate our reality. And to, for me, that's, you know, one of the most remarkable things is that 
um, you know, we're so far from understanding that. But then when I start to build, you know, uh, computer simulations of gradually increasing detail, you start to get glimpses of how, you know, the neurons and the circuits and the, and, and the, the dynamic ways in which this, this circuitry responds to stimuli and, and um, it can be modulated. It's, it's, it's unlike any kind of computation we've thought of before. I mean, it's, a, it's absolutely beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, that's, that's how why I experience it. Um, and, and there's so, so much to learn. So, um, you know, for me, it's, you know, being able to, to run a computer simulation that gives me a deeper insight and, and allows me to see what is some of the potential beauty in the system mm -hmm. uh, is really the, the, those things that give me the aha moment and the, yeah. the wow. <laughs> you know? I love that. And I'm glad that you brought up beautiful because when I had first learned about your research um, and the, the neuroimaging and this brain mapping that, um, that you've done throughout your career, I, I honestly, I kind of imagine this very like sci-fi um, Tony Stark, Iron Man-esque, you know, you've got this brain projection that's all over the place. And, and when I saw what this looks like, it's it's incredible. It almost looks like art in a way. Um, and, and granted, I don't understand the the depths of the beauty of it, but just seeing it and seeing that um, that those those intricate technicalities mapped out, it, it's incredible. But it's actually um, it's an integral part to this, right? Is is managing the complexity to create you know to create visualizations. Is such an integral part of understanding, and mm -hmm. and um, and of course those have to be meaningful. They can't just be you know artistic, right? <laughs> um, but but it's the only way that you can really get a handle on the complexity. If I was just spitting out lots of numbers and looking at you know huge Excel sheets with right. numbers, of course it's not gonna it's not gonna do anything for me, right? But when I can when I can turn it into something that you know is art i put it up on the walls in my house because i i think absolutely this is yeah. um and and it's also part at the same time it's part of understanding biological principles mm. and for me that's like that's the convergence of the two which i i really love but what was that that you just said the principles there well that, that you're through building these models and through visualizing we're also getting insight into principles about how the brain is organized and, and mm. functions interesting okay I, I have to ask why why this field because I mean the the combination between technology and uh, our brains which you could argue are the greatest supercomputer that we have I, I mean where like the fact with uh, neuroinformatics correct um, yep with that kind of marriage between the two, I mean, how does one even find this field, let alone, you know, become one of the world leaders in it? Well, I, I mean, I started off um, actually for just frustrated with computers because I thought, you know, God, they're really stupid. <laughs> and, uh, and, and then I wondered, well, what would it take to actually make a more intelligent computer? But as time has gone on, um, you know, and I got deeper into the neuroscience. And of course, mm. throughout life, uh, I think all of us have had, you know, friends and family members with mental health issues. Mm. Um, and, and you see that, you know, this is, this is very real. If we can, if we can make progress in understanding how the brain actually, you know, does work, mm -hmm. um, then, you know, we can start to 
to to learn principles that can help us better diagnose and treat mental illness. Yeah, which is, I mean, obviously, as somebody who's dealt with mental illness my whole life, general anxiety disorder, OCD, seeing the work that you guys are doing and applying this science to mental health is such a huge thing. But like we kind of talked about um, before we got going, this wasn't always kind of your principal focus. So when did you kind of get introduced to the the, the collaboration between the two mental health research and what uh, and, and your work? Right. Well, so, you know, in, in basic neuroscience, where, you know, where I've been working for many years in computational modeling of brain circuitry, you know, we're always kind of saying, well, the, the justification for doing this work is that someday we're going to have an impact on mental illness and, mm. and on neurode neurodegenerative disorders mm. and things like that. Well, you know, I realized after 10 years of, of working, you know, at length and building these very detailed simulations, that the only way we're really, really going to have that level of impact um, is to start, mm. and and to start really pushing it, and 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 concretely saying, look, what is the data that we can collect from the clinic today, mm. and how can we put in place a system that can adapt and can start yeah. to collect additional data because mm -hmm. we're going to have to learn this together there's no way that i as a as a neuroscientist is going to come into a clinic and say oh i've got the recipe you just need to measure this this right right so how to better diagnose and treat your patients and at the same time clinicians you know need the that the tools to help them make mm -hmm. better decisions they want the data actually mm -hmm. to be more accessible to be able to visualize the data to mm -hmm. be able to analyze and make predictions from the data they're looking for that so the partnership is really that collaboration between the clinic and the research and the modeling um, and at the same time building a system that can adaptively expand and and adapt to to new to collect new data and build new models so when you're talking about these models um, being collaborative, how does it work where anybody around the world can contribute to these models? How does I know this is this is something that you've worked on throughout a lot of a large portion of your career is collaborating around the world. How do you actually take all of this big data and collaborate it into one cohesive project? It's a massive challenge. <laughs> it's mm. a it's it's not an easy thing um, for many many reasons. Um, one of the one of the reasons is that uh, everybody, when they collect their data, they're typically using slightly different processes, slightly different measurement devices, um, with different goals, mm -hmm. and and so the, the there is this fundamental question of is this data combinable anyway? Mm, is gotcha. it is it scientifically valid to combine this data? And then also. Um, you know, it's hard just to describe the data well enough to, that somebody else could understand it. Mm -hmm. And then finally, the incentive structure of science and publishing in academia today doesn't really reward you for making that effort of getting your data organized and sharing it uh, so that others can benefit from it. And, and so there are some real core challenges, you know, and I've been working on, you know, all, all of those aspects, but um fundamentally you know we need to we need to shift the incentive system we need to shift the reward structure um to say hey you get real you know you'll advance your career you'll get rewarded mm -hmm. for 
fitting data together, for actually producing data that can be combined with other data. Yeah. Um, in, instead of saying, let's create another silo where I'm the, you know, I'm the one who produced the greatest data right, that right, sits right. all in isolation. <laughs> um, you know, we have to we have to flip that on its end. Mm-hmm. Would you say that that kind of like I would describe it as competitiveness? Um, would you say that that kind of is a bit of a issue in terms of progress within the science community? Well, it it absolutely is, and you see that um, you know some fields have changed, right? Mm-hmm. Where they 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 build a virtual observatory to to combine telescopes from around the world mm-hmm. to share data, right? Because you can't all have your own telescope, right? Um, so so those things are shared. Um, similarly, in genomics, from the start, it was just de facto well you have to put your data into these common databases um, or you don't get access to that data, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's just standard practice. Um, other domains have had a harder time of, of getting there and, and for a variety of reasons. And, um, you know, I think that it's really where it has to go, but mm-hmm. it, it, it takes uh, stages of development to get there. How do you see mental illness within this model? Like, how does it show up? Well, so, so fundamentally, um, you know, what we're, what we're doing is, is really collaborating with clinicians to mm-hmm. start to say, um, what is most useful to you? Mm-hmm. And we're also collaborating with patients and family members to say, what kind of, you know, data would be helpful to you mm-hmm. as well? Um, because one of the, you know, of course, a, a key part of this is having that involvement and that engagement in the treatment process and, and, and seeing, well, what things can be helpful. Of course, mm-hmm. you don't want to, you don't want to show things in a way that's not helpful either. Mm-hmm, right. Um, and so a, a lot of this is, is, um, you know, starting with the existing, you know, there are measurement based care pathways at, at CAMH where there's standardized assessments and there's standardized measurements on top, you know, in addition to the clinicians kind of meeting with the patient and, and having uh, notes, there are also some standard measures to see how well are things going. Mm-hmm. And we present a visual chart to that. But then there's additional things that would be helpful. So for example, knowing for a clinician, how well did my patient sleep? in the last week right and for us on the neuroscience side well that's really important very relevant to the underlying neurophysiology Mm -hmm. so there's a connecting point there where we collaborate then on saying let's get a let's get a a wristwatch that can measure activity and sleep Mm -hmm. and let's deploy that as part of the care pathway and so let's bring that data to the clinician so that when they're meeting they have this objective measure of, well, how, you know, how have you been doing in terms of sleep? And are you getting out and active during the day? Mm-hmm. Right. This is very fundamentally related to mental health. Mm-hmm. And, and the more tools that we can kind of layer in and the data that we can collect, we can, we can analyze it and we can use that to help make decisions, you know, well, what, you know, what would be a useful thing to prescribe or what would be useful cognitive behavioral therapy or, you know, what are some of, should we, you know, how does, how does the sleep issues maybe relate to a potential medication change? Right. Right. And it starts to be very concrete 
for the day-to-day care, but it also starts to build up a more neurobiologically related uh, set of data mm-hmm. that can help us, you know, help inform computational models that can then, you know, provide some 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 diagnosis, some prediction, some you know, to the clinician to decide. We're never saying like the model replaces the clinician or right, anything right, like right. that, but but let's but let's see how can we help? How how can we give more information? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that's really our, our focus. I love it. I, I find sleep very fascinating. Um, this idea that you spend half of your conscious or the half of your life in this unconscious state, um, is so incredible to me. And the fact that it, it almost kind of has this big question mark beside it, where it's just kind of like, well, we're asleep, not much we can, you either sleeping or you're not sleeping, there's not much you can do, but how important is sleep? And through your research, what have you seen the difference in like a, a brain that gets, eight hours of sleep a night and a brain that gets four hours of sleep a night. Well, so there's something in what you just said um, that's actually really, really important, which is we're either asleep or we're not. Mm. And that's not so clear. Mm, okay. it, tur- it turns out that local regions of your brain can be more asleep than others when you're, when you appear asleep. And also when you're awake, you can have areas of your brain that are asleep. All right, I, I'm going to need more on this. This is really interesting. <laughs> and yeah, so for us, this is a this is a big area of, of focus and of interest because um, fundamentally, sleep. The, there's a lot of evidence to to show that sleep is actually part of a homeostatic process, which means that it's it's actually part of your your brain rebalancing itself kind of scaling down the synaptic weights that get stronger during the day. This is this is from the synaptic homeostasis hypothesis from Giulio Tononi and Chiara Torelli. They, they posit that during the day, your synapses get stronger and stronger. And then by the time you go to sleep, you your brain, you know, your synapses are so strong, they're, they're coupling the neurons and they make you go through these sleep oscillations. Mm-hmm. And those oscillations actually bring the synaptic strength back down so if you don't get a full night's sleep you you, you're not really rebalancing your synaptic connectivity and it turns out that it looks like that can happen just in local parts of your brain as well okay so you could still potentially have eight hours of sleep but you can imagine well if there's been a trauma that caused one area of the brain to become hyper excitable and 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 not really be able to balance itself out. Well, that could be really relevant because it could become that area could become sleep deprived effectively. Wow! Right. So, so um, this is a hypothesis. Yeah. But... Yeah. Yeah. How, how would does one? And I don't know if you have the answer to this or not, but but how do you? how would you put your whole brain to sleep and then have your whole brain awake? Or is that even possible? Well, so, you know, the, the classic thing, the, the best thing to get that, that full brain kind of integration and, 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 and high quality sleep um, is like what your doctor tells you, get eat well, <laughs> exercise. Mm. Um, it's also important to have um, good activity and 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 intellectual stimulation or, or stimulation, I should mm-hmm. say, during the day, so that at night you get that good quality sleep. 
mm. right? But of course, that's complicated by lots of factors. It's complicated by by stressors, by anxiety, by you know, and so the the challenges is, you know, how do you in a combination of ways, right? Some some of it may be through um, pharmacological intervention that helps kind of calm things down mm -hmm. and helps you to sleep better. Some of it may be through cognitive behavioral therapy, which which for insomnia has been a very effective actually at, at decreasing insomnia. Interesting. Okay. Um, and then some of it may be through, you know, eventually targeted stimulation and, and intervention with those circuits that are hyper excitable to kind of get things uh, kind of reconnected and rebalancing um, mm. throughout the night. There's there, there's so much to learn still. We mm. don't have the answers. Mm. Um, but, I, you know, I think that, you know, the, the evidence is definitely accumulating that, you know, this is. First of all, I think the most important thing is this is a real physiological system with, mm -hmm. you know, when something gets knocked out of whack, there's there's physiology that we just don't have the right tools to measure today. Okay. What exactly is going on? Interesting. So with this, I, I, I'm just I'm very caught on this idea of um, is it these synapses that get strong throughout the day and then they need time to kind of rest Would this would that essentially kind of be like when you need to give your muscles time to rest. Cause when I'm hearing the synapses are strong, I'm thinking that that's a positive thing, but it sounds like it's not, you know, you kind of want them to be a little bit more lax. Well, so if you imagine, um, I don't know if you've, if you've ever looked at neural nets, but if, if you basically had, I, I have to study for this, uh, this interview. So yeah, <laughs> here we go. But if you imagine there's a group of neurons and they're connected and, 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 the biggest chunk of them are excitatory, right? So they're mm. making other neurons fire, right? Mm. And if you imagine that the, the connections between those keep getting stronger and stronger, what's going to happen is all of those neurons are going to start to respond just from the slightest stimulation, right? Mm -hmm. It's going to get really, really excitable. So all it's going to take is a little bit of a stimulus, have a big response. Mm, okay. Right? And what you actually want is you want to kind of have a balance between that excitation and that inhibition to mm -hmm. kind of have a nuanced response so that you can differentiate between, you know, and you can discriminate between is this is this a threat or is mm. this a, um, you know, something uh, that that's that's friendly, for example, mm. right? If you if you can't differentiate between that, you're just going to have this big response and, and like flee right right right, right, right. <laughs> um and and if you can bring that excitability down or the you know the, the synapses that are getting stronger throughout the day if you can kind of well let's let's consolidate what we learned today so the most mm. important new new things remain but that background of everything got more sensitive to stimulate let's just calm that back down so mm. that you're ready for a new day Right. That sounds a lot like uh, like anxiety to me. Uh, the idea of a bunch of synapses firing at the same or, you know, firing those neurons at the same time and having that immediate response sounds a lot like an anxiety attack. Well, so there are parts of the brain that become increasingly excitable in mm. the context of, of anxiety. To map that all out, we still have a lot of work to do. Mm -hmm. But that does seem to be a principle um, a, pretty much across all disorders of the brain that that there are parts of the brain that become hyper excitable um and you know there's a lot to learn there but 
part of what we want to understand is well which parts and how can we identify that and and what are the consequences and you know how do we how do we try to target that and treat that hmm. so define consequences for me in in terms of that whole situation well so for example if, if you imagine one part of the brain becoming hyper excitable mm -hmm. Well, every part of the brain is super connected to mm -hmm. other parts of the brain. And so there can be consequences of having one little, you know, area that kind of gets reinforced and and, and is hypersensitive and hyper uh, aroused and mm -hmm. hyper excitable because it's connected to mm -hmm. lots of other areas. And and so the question is, is um, you know, how is that manifesting? And is there a way... I mean, part of the biggest challenge is just to find where in the brain mm -hmm. are these, um, you know, hyper excitabilities or what, you know, where, where is there something that's perturbed mm -hmm. due to a disorder so that you can better target it and treat, treat it. Would I be accurate to say that um, the brain has a finite amount of energy that it can draw from? And I'm just kind of thinking about the idea of because of the fact that we have sleep, um, it, it almost seems like a recharge cycle and obviously throughout the day you get more and more tired, but if you have a part of your brain that is taking up more energy than the other parts because of that super connectivity, would it then kind of almost drain the, um, firing power, the, the, you know, cognitive power from those other parts of the brain? Well, so this is, this is exactly an area that we're investigating because, mm -hmm. um, it does seem that. If you have exactly as you're saying, if you have one area or areas that are hyper excitable, right, that's going to take a lot more energy to kind of keep things functioning, right? Mm -hmm. So that so that you can um, your mitochondria, which are the cells, the engines of the cell, to, the powerhouse to of the cell, the grade ten exactly. science. There we go. I knew exactly. it. Exactly, it was going to come in eventually. <laughs> And those are really important mm -hmm. to kind of making sure that you can you can control some of that excitability, mm. right? And because there's all all sorts of biological mechanisms that need the energy to keep things balanced and keep mm -hmm. things functioning. And if you're really you know hyper excitable, well, they have to work harder, mm. right? And it turns out there's there's some evidence to suggest that if the, your mitochondria get really, really worn out or really, really stressed mm -hmm. because they're working so hard, well, that could potentially trigger an immune response. And, and you can actually have an immune response to this hyperexcitability. Wow. <laughs> so this is, again, there's, there, there's just early evidence for this. Right. Um, yeah. but, there, but there are a lot of people studying specialized cells called microglia and the relationship to mitochondria and these microglia if they get activated they actually start to eat synapses and wow. they start to they, they start to remodel your synaptic connectivity and so there's a lot more to learn about this whole world of neuroimmunology but I think that's an area that is so ripe for you know investigation and for real impact on mental health. When I'm hearing about all of this, it, it kind of sounds like almost like I, I've always been told. I remember when I was a kid that my parents would always kind of talk about how bad stress is for your brain, how bad it is for your body. You know, the you know, all the stories that you hear about somebody stressing themselves into the grave, basically. And when you kind of talk about the idea of triggering an actual immune response, it actually sounds like there is a link potentially between stress and like 
your physical well-being versus just kind of mental well-being. Absolutely. Now, what's mm-hmm. interesting is that you do need a certain level of stress to be healthy. Okay. Right? Interesting. So, yeah, so, yeah. So, so there is this this kind of balance, right? You mm-hmm. don't want to have absolutely nothing that's kind of driving you and motivating you and giving you some background stress that mm-hmm. actually keeps you healthy. And but you don't want to push it too far. You don't right. want to have that become kind of a traumatic stress, right? Um, right. Which then becomes really hard to deal with, and exactly as you say, you know, kind of in, in intense energetic demands and mm. uh, immune response potentially. Hmm. Does sleep have a significant um, relationship with immune response? So it does. In fact, um, long-term sleep deprivation is associated with an immune response. Okay. And and in, in fact, um, I mean, some of these, these very early experiments in the 70s saw that if you sleep deprived rats for you know two weeks, that they actually got sick and died. Wow. And what the, res- what the cause of it, as far as they could tell, was actually a massive immune response. Hmm. And so there is a link there. There are many other studies um, linking sleep to immune uh, activity, um, but there's still so much to learn. Mm-hmm. We don't. We really don't have all the answers. Mm-hmm. What What's a big answer right now that you are try you are are looking for? Well, so so we're. You know, we're we've got a whole team of people all right. working on it, like really really yeah, interesting. Yeah. Um, problems, but you know, I'm I'm deeply involved in in some of the computational modeling and just trying to understand at the cellular and synaptic level how these sleep rhythms are generated mm-hmm. and what happens in the circuitry between wakefulness and sleep, and um, you know, and and how could we have something like you know local sleep within that? Um, so there's you know the, the, that's one level. The other level is we're we're really working on how can we use data about an individual's sleep and activity patterns and use that as a helpful predictive tool in the context of mental health disorders. So how how big would a study size have to be for you to build an accurate obviously it's still ongoing so I imagine it's pretty massive but when you're kind of just starting those first steps into uh, a study like you just talked about with studying somebody's brain patterns and trying to kind of make assumptions and, and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, like theorize basically like what the outcome would be, like what kind of sample sizes that look like? Well, so yeah, as, as I'm sure you know, there's so many individual differences. <laughs> and so the larger the sample size, the better because mm-hmm. uh, you know, obviously, it's a huge challenge to to draw strong conclusions from just a few individuals. Mm-hmm. And so, one of the things that we're we're working on at CAMH is something called the Brain Health Data Bank, which is basically it's an effort to to again collaborate with all of the clinics. We're starting with major depression, and to accumulate data essentially from all of the patients that are willing to contribute their data, mm-hmm. right? So we have about a thousand so far, and this gives us kind of core baseline data just to understand how how is an individual doing. We, we mm-hmm. of course we 
we protect this. This is all, you know, fully private, but also mm-hmm. consented, right? So that the yeah. patient agrees to share this data mm-hmm. uh, for for the research. But the idea is, is that we sh- we need to have these pictures. We need to have these individual pictures. Mm-hmm. We call them patient trajectories or, or you know journeys. How did they do over the course of their, their mm-hmm. treatment? Did wh- which medications worked? And, and as we layer in for this research study, as we layer in the the wrist watch for measuring right, right, sleep, right, right. right? Then we 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 have that concurrent with their treatment. And which means we can start to see, well, how did the medication affect their sleep? Mm. Right. And, and the idea is, is to really layer in research on top of the core care mm-hmm. so that together we can start to build a much better picture of, indivi- of that individuality mm-hmm. of mental, mental disorders and illnesses. When you're mapping all of this out, um, how how does it look differently when you're studying something like anxiety versus something like depression? Because I feel like those are two, you've kind of got anxiety that's it's peaking, you know, you're, you're really, things are firing very quickly. And then depression, I would think is drawing a lot of energy and kind of like, it's that numbness, that, that feeling of very weighted down, kind of like, how do those two look differently and what parts of the brains are those affecting differently? Well, so, you know, I think part of what, I'm interested in is understanding how those are related in terms of a time course as well, right? That, that there's, that there's a progression and that there's an evolution. And that part of this is understanding the physiological processes that underlie each. And mm-hmm. it's possible uh, you know, that, that the physiology of the, the anxiety response may actually lead to the physiology of the depression response. Okay. Right. And it's not necessarily always going to be, you know, but, but part of what we want to do is build a temporal picture, right? It's not that on any given day, this is the disorder and that's it, Mm. right? This, these things evolve and fluctuate and, Mm. and there's interplay, right? And so we need to build up that, 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 kind of time varying picture and understand the relationship between these two things. Hmm. These are, those are symptoms, right? Anxiety right, and right, depression right. are symptoms, but there's an underlying biological cause. And we need to be able to, to identify, you know, what is that, that the time course of that underlying biological cause? Mm-hmm. Yeah, because that's, I mean, obviously you hear about in mental health and mental illness a lot. I mean, I would use my own experiences as reference. Like I've went from two years ago, really not great spot, uh, was finishing up my schooling, was super overwhelmed, working two jobs, had this podcast, was working at an internship. And now um, after taking some medication, meditation, therapy, the works, I feel great normal some would say and so and so that idea of like how the brain can essentially heal itself is fascinating to me and so like I, i do love that idea of looking at the time trajectory of kind of like where everything's at and it is it's ebbs and flows and there's ups and downs but to go from point a to point b is like obviously going to be different for everyone but it is a it's a process (laughs) like it takes some it takes some serious time yeah do you guys 
how do you guys see that uh, that that time lapse? Like, what what are you guys looking for in terms of like kind of um, projecting or, or what am I the word I'm looking for? Kind of like looking for when they might get worse or when they might get better or kind of like uh, predicting when things might turn up. Well, so, well, so first of all, um, I just want to sort of add my thanks to you just to openly talk about your own mental health well, thank you, um, and your own journey, because I think there's nothing more important for the successful treatment of mental health that people can acknowledge and recognize and seek help. Mm. Um, and that is one of those things where, you know, because there has been historically so much stigma around just making, you know, such an admission. Big time. And, and, and yet, if we don't get people to, to sort of recognize that early, mm-hmm. right, then it progresses to a point where it's harder and harder to treat. So yeah. it's, it's, it's really important what you're doing and, and your podcast. I think it's, it's, it's really valuable. And it's Definitely. related to, to what you're asking as well, which is that, um, you know, we want to be able to, we don't know the answer yet, mm-hmm. right? What we want to do is we want to learn what are those different trajectories and how are the, the individual trajectories? Because again, as we, as we know, each individual has their own unique circumstance. They have their own genetics. They have their own lifestyle. Mm-hmm. They have their own social interactions. They've got their own, you know, it's a very personal thing. Um, and there's just as many different trajectories, right? And there's mm-hmm. different responses to, to treatments. So part of what we want to do is, is accumulate a large amount of data so that we can start to recognize the patterns in there. Mm-hmm. Where are people with maybe some similar characteristics, maybe a similar genetic uh, background, or maybe a similar um, lifestyle or a similar you know, combination of factors? Mm-hmm share some similar trajectories and Mm. where we can make some predictions about, well, here's a therapy that worked Mm. for these individuals. Let's, let's see, you know, that that can be more effective Mm -hmm. uh, for you because it's always, you know, as you know, it's always a challenge of finding the right treatment for an individual. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And we want to tailor that. It's funny. I know that, um, a lot of people, I was very fortunate within my, uh, my, I guess I could say recovery, um, in that the first medication I tried, which was Sertraline Zoloft, um, mm-hmm. was, was effective for me. I've been taking, I take, I take it every day. Um, it, it was great. Yeah. I didn't have to try a bunch of different medications. Right. Um, so that kind of first shot at the dartboard and getting it right. I'm pretty it's happy wonderful. about that. It's great. <laughs> it's yeah. Great. But, um, but I know that, yeah, it's, it is funny how I've told other people about, how it's helped me and I've had friends of mine who have kind of been going through very similar circumstances who have tried it and it's only made them worse. Um, so I, I guess I kind of wanted to hear from you, like it, just the, the varying of how much it can change from one person to another. Well, so there, there's actually a large amount of work on this um, at CAMH looking at pharmacogenomics mm. and trying to understand the relationship between how an individual metabolizes, um, how, how their physiology reacts to a particular treatment um, versus another, and that there is a genomic relationship there. Some people have different genes that help them metabolize uh, a particular drug in one way versus another. 
And those differences are just very real physiology, right? And so you want to be able to, to quickly and, and detect that early to say, oh, we're not going to, we're not even going to try this drug because right. we know that your physiology won't react well to it um, or you won't be able to benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Right? And, um, and so there is, a, there is uh, a lot of work there and there is success um, in, in developing pharmacogenomics. But the numbers, again, it's that heterogeneity, it's that diversity of humanity, right? Mm. We, need, we need a lot more data to get to the point where we can you know, really reliably answer that question for you know a broad population. Does AI help with that? I mean, when, when you have only so many people that you can basically draw from, like with your AI simulations, are they able to accurately replicate kind of like an individual's brain chemistry and kind of like that, that whole scope of what's going on between a person's ears? Well, so that's a goal. Yeah. <laughs> um, we're not there yet. Right. But, but, you know, I don't want to, I don't, I don't want people to sort of believe we've, we've got this all solved. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's absolutely a goal. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think there's a lot of opportunity there. Uh, and there are a lot of, you know, great algorithms, but fundamentally we also need large scale, good quality data that help us find those, those relationships. But of, of course, AI is a key tool in the process. Mm-hmm. And AI, I mean, just keeps getting better, seemingly. Um, what, like, how does one look at improving AI in your field? Is this like, it's artificial intelligence is something that, you know, as somebody with a media degree, we heard a lot about completely don't understand it. Um, couldn't even begin to grasp like how, um, a computer is able to like kind of continuously get better. Um, so, so what does that look like from, from you who's working on the back end of improving that technology? Well, so um, AI is a collection of tools, right? And it's a lot of very, you know, powerful things. Obviously, deep learning is 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 you know the 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 shining child of <laughs> of AI today. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a you know lot of tools, natural language processing, and a lot you know whole vast field of machine learning and advanced statistical modeling, which is all interrelated. Mm-hmm. Um, all of that fundamentally depends on data that is you know that is not going to lead an algorithm astray right Mm. and and you know you've heard the adage garbage in garbage out Mm. um there is a lot of opportunity with these new techniques to you know fill in patterns right complete things where maybe there's some missing data if you have a large large samples but you always have to be careful with that to make sure that um, the assumptions and the generalizations are actually right. And, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, for us, um, one of the most important initiatives, I think, um, in our center is really to focus in on understanding how do we collect data that captures the context of how the data was produced, but also is, is sensitive to the equity and the, and the diversity of the individuals that, mm. you know, are we getting data that's representative of the diversity of Toronto, for example, mm. right? Are, are we, you know, is care accessible mm-hmm. to 
the full diversity of the population. So, so Sean, I wanted to ask, as somebody who who is working around the brain constantly, um, who is I, I find myself because of working within the mental health space, I sometimes get overwhelmed by talking about mental health almost too much. Um, you know, it, it's one of those things being like the mental health guy in my community, uh, being a small, a small community. Um, it, it's sometimes that, you know, I get that, that overwhelmed, uh, feeling. So I was kind of curious as somebody within the space, how do you manage, uh, your own mental health? What are the kind of things that you do to get away? So I think, you know, one of the most important things for, for me personally is, um, getting some exercise and just walking, walking. Um, I try to walk, you know, five miles a day, go running. For me, that just clears the brain and, and, and really does wonders. Um, the other thing that I do for relaxation is to cook. And, um, and, and I think just having something where you, you, you know, you're able to just go and focus on something totally different than work and, um, you know, something that you enjoy, uh, you know, really, really helps just, you know, you've got to use, I, I think you really have to use lots of different parts of your brain to get balanced. If you're only focused on one aspect, I think those areas get too excited. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta, you gotta engage everything else too, in order to get that good quality integration. A really important question. What's your go-to dish? <laughs> oh, I make all sorts of things. Last night I made uh, Shanghai noodles. Um, I like, I like a, a, Italian food. Uh, I try to I try to stir it up. It's always a fun to have a challenge and and something fresh and and interesting. Mm-hmm. Are are you a big uh, like puzzle person? Do you like like chess or anything like that? So I love Go. Mm. Go is 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 definitely the the game that I I really love. I love how something so simple can emerge to this incredible complexity. And, Absolutely, um, it's a lot of fun. That's great. The last question I have for you, Sean, and I appreciate you taking the time uh, today. My pleasure. I, I feel a lot more um, enlightened. I'm sure my listeners do as well. And it's, it's it's really great to hear about this other side of mental health and hearing what people are doing to further the research behind it. Um, and, and like you said, doing something that to me is beautiful, like, you know, seeing everything that's being done and this tapestry that's being created about this thing that it is it's beyond words to me. Um, I, I remember when I was younger, the idea of the fact that my brain was making itself sick, uh, but then was mm. also capable of healing itself. Um, was this like, the, it was so interesting to me. So hearing about your work is really incredible. And I hope to have you back on the podcast one day uh, and we can uh, chat more about everything. Well, um, well thank you. It's, it's really been fantastic. That's great. Uh, the last question that I have for you is at the end of every episode, I like to give a challenge out to my listeners, um, something that they can implement into their day, week, month, um, just anything that can help better their mental health. Uh, and, and from your research, I would love to know what challenge you'd put forth. Well, so the the, the most basic thing, and, and maybe sometimes the hardest thing, but is is to work on sleep, what's called sleep hygiene. Um, it's, it's basically, you know, have a routine that you can get into so that you can get as high quality sleep as possible at night. And a lot of that involves just kind of allowing yourself to wind down, do do something relaxing, quiet, get off the screens and get yourself into bed at a, at a you know, reasonable hour so that you can so that you can get the amount of sleep you need. I don't think you should feel pressured that you have to get eight hours mm. or, or not. It's much more about give yourself enough time to sleep 
where you don't need an alarm clock to wake yourself up. Mm, I think that's a, I love that. I think that's fantastic. So I, I shouldn't be up until like two in the morning watching like, you know, fails on YouTube or anything like that. I should probably, you know, <laughs> keep it pretty regimented. It's it's really good for your brain to do that. Yeah. All right. Good stuff. <laughs> um, Dr. Sean Hill, I appreciate it. Um, how can everyone learn about what you're doing? How can everyone follow the incredible work uh, that the Kremble Institute is doing? So please come to our website. It's kremblenneuroinformatics.ca. And um, yeah. Welcome any any questions, comments, thoughts. I love great, it. Great to participate. Thank you. And that's that. So wow, it's pretty incredible. I I can't. I love when you're trying to process what Doctor Hill was talking about, and all all I was like all that was happening was just interesting. Mm, interesting. Well, holy shit, like what else am I supposed to say? No, I, I get it. But like, I mean, come on, man. Dig into the bag of tricks a little bit. It's not always that easy, man. Do you have, do you have any notes? Do you have any little finishing notes on this one? I actually, I, I do have a quick one. Um, it, it puts my mind at ease knowing that people like Dr. Hill exist. Like he, he's an incredibly smart man who is helping people like us understand us. And I think that's pretty cool. That's a very nice way of putting it. Well, you know, I have a habit of, of kind of saving you at the end of these uh, episodes. It gets a little bit dry, so let's try to spice things up. Or it could be seen as me just giving you like a chance to add something wow. to the podcast. Wow. Oh. That's Guys, if you like this episode nice. of the podcast, leave a review uh, wherever you're listening. And, and just remember that in life, you know, whether it's me talking to myself 12 hours before this episode Dave used to finish it or mapping brain circuitry using AI, life's a wreck. See you in two weeks. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.